The Jewish views on commemorating the Holocaust. Could we really be about to see a memorial built in the heart of Westminster? Author Rachel Lichtenstein on her latest book, Estuary, Out from London to the Sea. And how bar and bat mitzvah students helped raise funds for the Ethiopian-Israeli community in Haifa. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The former Israeli president, Shimon Peres, remains in intensive care in a hospital near Tel Aviv after a severe stroke earlier this week. His son, Chemi, gave a sober assessment of his father's condition, saying that the family would have to make decisions, though he didn't specify what those were. Mr. Perez, who's 93, is said to be in a stable and fully conscious state as he undergoes treatment. It's been reported that he had a visit from Benjamin Netanyahu. A new state-of-the-art Holocaust Learning Centre could be built underground by the Houses of Parliament in the heart of Westminster. A new national memorial would be erected above it. The Learning Centre would have testimonies from British survivors and liberators. Both were key proposals of David Cameron's Holocaust Commission and will be implemented by the new Prime Minister, Theresa May. The Christian aid charity World Vision has suspended its operations in Gaza following Israel's accusations that the local director, Mohammed El Halabi, had diverted £32 million of funds to the military wing of Hamas. A World Vision spokesman wouldn't confirm that 120 contractors had been laid off. The charity is one of the largest humanitarian organisations in the world. Israel's Shin Bet Security Service has claimed that El Halabi was a Hamas member, but World Vision says he's a widely respected colleague who's worked diligently and professionally in fulfilling his duties. A groundbreaking new Duke of Edinburgh-style award scheme has been unveiled which aims to broaden the experiences of bar and bat for children. It's been developed by the chief rabbi, who hopes to ensure that thousands of 12- and 13-year-olds will take part. If they do, it will mean that the coming-of-age milestone broadens out to volunteering in or outside the community and engaging in Jewish learning, amongst other things. Points will be earned with gold, silver and bronze awards. And finally, the American Jewish singer Adam Lambert, together with the band Queen, entertained 50,000 ecstatic Israelis this week at a concert in Tel Aviv. Original band member and lead guitarist Brian May even played a version of Havana Gila. That's the news for the sport. We join Andrew. Thanks, Viv. Rower Moran Samuel claimed Israel's first medal at the Rio Paralympics and celebrated finishing her third-place finish with the other precious bronze in her life, her son Arad, whose name translates as bronze in Hebrew. Israel's other medalist to date is shooter Doran Shaziri. He also won bronze to claim his eighth overall Paralympic medal. The opening day of the Jewish football season saw Premier Division champions North London Raiders suffer a 4-2 home defeat to Redbridge. The latter next faced a mouth-watering match against Hendon, who were 6-3 winners against FC Team. And finally, the world's second-largest mixed martial arts promotion has announced it will be hosting its first event in Israel, with Israeli Noad Lahat taking on Scott Cleave as part of the card on the 10th of November. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Welcome along to this week's episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look at this week's edition of The Jewish News. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Richard, on the front page, the headline reads, Raising the Bar and Bat. Tell us more. Nothing to do with cricket. Although you know that you raise the bat when you get to 100. But anyway, I digress. This is a very, very important community story. When I was 13, when I was a bar mitzvah boy, standout... What a memory. Standout memorable moments. 30 years ago it was. Standout memorable moments for me were my Steve Davis snooker cake, not plucking up the courage to ask Rachel Fagan if she'd like to come. She was lovely. And getting (laughs) banana split. Remember them? to allow me to play Casey and the Sunshine's band Baby Give It Up made me feel like Pete Tong. Anyway, all these were great experiences for me, but they were hardly formative experiences. They were hardly experiences that created the man you see before me today. The chief rabbi has now decided to make bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs something that's part of the framework of a young Jewish person's life. So not only are you going to read your parasha, not only are you going to have your party, you're also going to have a three-year process where you build up to it by learning about uh, social skills, charitable skills, genealogical skills, looking at the history of the Jewish people and your own family. It's actually going to be a framework where you're going to have a rewarding and gratifying experience that will create hopefully a young man or a young woman into a young person for years to come it's, it's going to be a real rite of passage really exciting process that the chief rabbi has introduced this week well it looks sensational but of course the only thing that bothers me justin is that i distinctly remember my bombets for being hard enough work as it was i don't think i wanted any more work to add to it yeah well, one of the interesting things about this new initiative is actually it's going to last for three years leading up to the actual ceremony so someone in going into year seven at the beginning of secondary school will have an opportunity to to do some of these activities and will, to make themselves a, a, a better person as well as perhaps being more jewishly engaged so for example uh, one of the things that they're planning on doing is having uh, the duke of edinburgh style scheme with a gold silver and a bronze award so uh, year seven will go go for bronze up to gold at year nine, the year of, of a bar mitzvah. And as part of this, people will be asked to raise money for charity, to do something within their community, within their shul community, to help it out. And also there'll be an opportunity for for whole families to come together. So it will become something that isn't just about that boy or that girl, but their whole family can get involved. And, and, and one of the components will be learning family history, genealogy. Uh, I think that's a, a particularly interesting element of this, of this whole project. But yeah, I think Donald Trump, if he was to have developed this scheme, would be talking about making bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs great again. <laughs> well, there you yeah. go. I don't think there's anything else to follow on from that. Uh, other I, and than... I'd like to apologise to the Chief Rabbi for, for drawing that parallel there. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only way we can possibly follow on from that is to talk about the next story, which is Nash Shah, the MP, of course, who was slightly disgraced a little while ago for posting rather inflammatory comments on Facebook about Israel, is going to address a rally against anti-Semitism. Yeah, an absolutely incredible lineup of speakers for this rally. This will take place on the opening day of the party conference, hours after the new leader, or likely the old new leader, is announced at that party conference in Liverpool. 
Uh, this is going to take place on the fringe of the conference. I suspect from this lineup that it's going to be an absolute packed to capacity, ram packed, as Jeremy Corbyn might say, hmm. event where there are speakers from all parts of the party, from from the hard left representatives of momentum, Rhea Wolfson, for example, uh, recently elected to the National Executive Committee. Only Jewish member of the National Executive Committee will be speaking, as will the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, who has raised a few eyebrows himself for being on this on this panel. But we'll also have the likes of Luciana Berger, Ruth Smith, who have both, of course, faced their own woes with anti-Semitism. There'll also be Shami Chakrabarti, now Baroness Chakrabarti, and Baroness Royal all speaking. And the idea, I think, is that this be a landmark moment, that JLM hope this will be a landmark moment where all elements of the party can come together and make it absolutely clear that anti-Semitism and other forms of racism, that this rally will also be for that, have no place within the party. As I said, the, the, the inclusion of someone like John McDonnell, who had recently stood on the same platform as Jackie Walker just a few days ago, of course, another member of the party who was suspended and then reinstated into the party to the great disquiet of many members of the Jewish community. The fact that he's on the panel has, has raised some disquiet, but this has an opportunity to be a really significant moment at conference. I'm, I'm sure one that will gain a lot of attention. Well, Rich, do you think that this could finally spell the beginning of the end? And by that, I mean, of course, of this saga that seems to have been dragging on for the best part of this year and then some. I think we got to the end of the patience in terms of the Jewish community and the Labour Party quite a while ago. I think the Shami Chakrabarti uh, issue was probably the, the final nail in a coffin with many, many nails. I think Jewish Labour movement, Labour Friends of Israel, all the other affiliations in the party that are putting this thing together should be applauded. There's going to obviously be some issues. People like McDonnell and Chakrabarti herself and of course Naz Shah are going to be controversial figures. But you open up any newspaper, be it a Jewish one or, or a national one, any day of the week, and you will see endless amounts of copy, endless amounts of stories, this ongoing issue with Labour and anti-Semitism. When will they get to the bottom of it? When will it be finally and utterly cleaned out of the closet? I personally, it's not the, uh, it's not anybody else's view but my own, I, I don't think that it's going to change until we have a change of leadership. And it looks very clear that uh, Owen Smith is not going to succeed in taking over from Corbyn in a few weeks' time. In a few weeks time. Look at this week's paper of the Jewish News. We've got a, a story about uh, Shami Chakrabarti saying that she would do it all over again after receiving a lot of criticism about becoming a peer, Labour donor being suspended, more councillors being probed over Zio claims every single day, another can of worms. So, uh, no, this isn't going to do anything, but my God, I'd love to have a ticket for this event, and I'm a bit jealous that Justin's going to be there. <laughs> well, Justin, I'm sure that you will keep us informed as and when. OK, let's have a look now at what London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who is obviously not Jewish, but he's in the Jewish news. How come? Yeah, from one Labour leader who uh, really is struggling to, to get the Jewish community on side to one that absolutely has and has gone out of his way to do so since his campaign earlier this year. Sadiq Khan, the new mayor of London, is actually in America as we speak and will be for, for a five-day trip to New York, Chicago and Montreal, in which he's going to not only be trying to build business contacts with those cities, but will specifically be looking to further some of his other key agenda points, for example, social cohesion and making sure everyone feels included within the city and not left out. Remember, of course, that Sadiq Khan made it very clear when he campaigned to become mayor that he wanted to be a mayor for all Londoners. That was his key message. 
And it's something that he's acted upon since he became mayor in London, but he's going to continue that on this American visit. He's going to visit two synagogues, not one, but two synagogues, including that of Ram Emanuel, the Chicago mayor himself, an Orthodox synagogue on this Shabbat, and he's going to have an opportunity to take part in those services. He'll also then be taking part in an interfaith event at another synagogue before moving on to New York, where he's going to be uh, at an evangelical church, and then, I understand, hosted by the current mayor of New York at another interfaith reception. Goodness. Well, it certainly would appear as if Mr. Khan is being true to his original impression that he gave to the Jewish community. Of course, the first official event he went to was a Shoah memorial. Speaking of which, there's supposed to be a Shoah memorial right here in the heart of London in Westminster. We heard this just now in the news with Viv. We're going to talk about it more in a little while with Olivia Marks Waldman. But... Richard. David Cameron's Holocaust Commission. Do you remember David Cameron used to be an MP? Um, vaguely. Yeah. Well, during He was his, quite high up, wasn't he? he? <laughs> yes, he had a, a few important things to do. One of the things was the Holocaust Commission. They have come to the conclusion there's going to be a centre, an underground centre, which is very exciting, in the heart of Westminster, Victoria Tower Gardens. And the blueprints aren't in existence yet because the plans and the designs haven't yet been created. So we're going to be following this over the years. It's going to be quite a while before this thing pops up opposite Big Ben. But when it finally does, it's going to be a very important and hopefully something that the, the, this, the Jewish community and the whole of Britain can focus on in terms of a, a legacy issue. Because obviously the next 10 years or so, we're sadly going to start to lose the survivors that we uh, currently preciously have. So we are going to need to look to the future and how we are going to commemorate this dark tragedy of the 20th century. And it's good that Theresa May is taking on board a lot of David Cameron's commission requirements and suggestions. It's going to be a very, very emotional and evocative site in the heart of Westminster. Certainly is. Well, we're going to, as I said, discuss more about that throughout the rest of this programme. That's unfortunately where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've just heard, proposals published this week suggest that a new state-of-the-art Holocaust learning centre should be built in the heart of Westminster. Now, although this is still in its very early stages, even the thought of one of the worst periods in our histories being recognised in such a way is utterly incredible. To discuss this further, I've been speaking to Olivia Marks Waldman, the chief executive of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. I started by asking her to tell us exactly how these plans came about. In 2014, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, announced he would be establishing a commission to investigate Holocaust education for years to come. In other words, he was stating the importance that he placed on Holocaust education, but recognising that Holocaust survivors would not be with us for many more years. And he wanted us to be thinking, as a nation, what can we do to address this? That's the aim of the Commission. On Holocaust Memorial Day 2015, the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister David Cameron, attended Holocaust Memorial Day's UK ceremony and announced that he was accepting the recommendations of his commission and would be setting up a Holocaust Memorial Foundation to take forward its recommendations. That UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation has been chaired by Sir Peter Bazalgette from the original commission and has been examining over the past year how it can carry forward and implement those recommendations. 
And on Holocaust Memorial Day 2016, in January this year, Sir Peter Bazalgette announced at the UK ceremony that a location had been found for a memorial, a national Holocaust memorial. And that location, as many of your listeners may be aware, is Victoria Tower Gardens, right next to the Houses of Parliament. It's a really significant location. It just strikes me as a bit unbelievable, really, because obviously I have found out this news at the same time as most other people listening to this programme have. And I think I could honestly say that in my wildest imagination, I wouldn't have thought that it would be so prominent and so poignant right in the middle of Westminster. It does seem amazing to even think that this could potentially happen. It is a very significant symbol of the importance that the government places on Holocaust commemoration, the value the government holds on Holocaust survivors, and I think as a credit to the work of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust and the work that goes on across the country with people commemorating the Holocaust, and of course the work of so many organisations in the Jewish community and beyond, the Anne Frank Trust, the Wiener Library, Imperial War Museum, Holocaust Educational Trust, there are many organisations working tirelessly to ensure that as many people as possible learn about the Holocaust and this key recommendation for a Holocaust memorial I think fills the gap that these organisations haven't been set up to address they're focused around education or museums or our work in communities across the country and this national memorial will provide that focal point for the nation and I agree with you to have its location in such a significant and prominent place says a great deal about the commitment of the government to this issue. It certainly does when you mentioned some fantastic organisations just now including obviously your own how do you envisage moving forward that those various organisations will work with governments to make sure that this process is done as sensitively and as efficiently I suppose as possible. The initial recommendations from the Commission focused on two different areas. One was a national memorial which we've been talking about and the other was a learning centre and the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation has already engaged all these organisations and others such as academics in discussing what a learning centre could be, what it might look like, how it could ensure a a message is reached to a wider audience whilst not duplicating the work of existing organisations. So we've already been engaged to an extent on, on those discussions. And the recent announcement about the memorial is carrying forward that other recommendation from the Commission. Why do you think it is... And I know this might be a bit tricky to answer because it might be one of those how long is a piece of string questions. But why do you think something like this hasn't happened sooner? Do you think there's any particular reason or is it just that suddenly we've reached a stage where we now realise that Holocaust survivors are few and far between? In a few years time, obviously, there'll be hardly any if at all left. Do you think that we've just woken up and realised now that of the importance behind it? Or is there any other reason that this hasn't happened sooner? I think... To an extent, you've answered the question yourself. I agree with the the suggestions you're putting forward. I think part of the answer has been that there actually has been a national memorial to the Holocaust in Hyde Park, and that has met a need. And we're now at the point where we're recognising that it is not big enough, it's not well enough known, it's not really appropriate for the enormity of the Holocaust and for what the Holocaust has meant to wider society. I think you're right that we're at a stage as a nation where we're appreciating 
the value of Holocaust survivors and how few there are of them. And I think part of the answer lies in the success of Holocaust Memorial Day in reaching communities across the country. And we can all see the appetite and the desire from non-Jewish communities around the country to mark what happened in the Holocaust and to learn from it. And just as a reminder, there are five and a half thousand local activities from Stornoway at the northern part of Scotland to Cornwall and Taunton. In every community in the country, there are people who want to mark the Holocaust and learn from it and commemorate what happened and what happened in genocide since then. And I think that's been part of the questioning as to why we don't have a national memorial to provide a focal point to match that local desire to commemorate too. You see, when one thinks, certainly from my point of view anyway, when one thinks of Holocaust Memorial, I think that one of the first places that comes into people's minds is somewhere like Yad Vashem. And Yad Vashem obviously has this massive impact on you. It's not just a Holocaust learning centre. It is a place where you almost experience as close as anyone could even begin to imagine what our ancestors must have gone through all those years ago. Do you seriously think that we could hope to achieve something like that in this country? Are people going to have the same impact upon them in whatever learning centre does come to be out of this? There are a number of different Holocaust memorials around the world. In addition to Yad Vashem, there are memorials that I know the Foundation have visited and given thought to, not only in Berlin and and America, but other places too. There are different kinds of impacts. There are the ones that you've described at Yad Vashem. There can be a huge impact in something smaller and more reflective if it is done well and enables people to have that space and it prompts people in the right ways to commemorate what happened in the past. I think this is a very exciting opportunity for somebody, for a design team, an architectural company to come up with something that will be of lasting significance to Britain. Olivia Marks Waldman talking to me there about proposals to commemorate the Holocaust with a memorial and learning centre in the heart of Westminster. Now, those with a keen ear might have recognised that we were out and about when I spoke to Olivia, and that's because we spoke after she'd just finished attending an AJR seminar at JW3, which meant I also got the opportunity to talk with Lily Abert, a Holocaust survivor herself. Such significant potential plans meant that it was only right to get the thoughts of someone who went through the very event we're trying to commemorate. I asked Lily for her reaction to the proposals. I find it very important, really. I find at all education, to educate people, that is one of the most important things. And that is the only thing, really, what we can see of the Holocaust, the survivors, what it was like to survive. And now we know how to educate the next generation that something like that should never, ever happen again. But do you worry that if, let's say, in 50 years' time from now, when there's potentially going to be very few, if any, survivors left, is there going to be a risk of not being able to truly get the message across of, of what you and other members of the community went through all those years ago? We don't need 50 years. You gave me a lot, very long time limit, a few years' time, really. Survivors, 
camps survivors will be a very few here. Oh, it will be a few, not everybody can talk. And who can talk will be also very old already. So in a few years, we don't need 50 years to that. Secondly, the biggest problem is even not that. The biggest problem is we are alive. We are here today. And even so, so many deniers when we are still alive. And I feel it, the deniers know it that really happened. They must have another they will, they have something, some, I don't know what, why I am, that they do it. Because I say, they don't believe for us, the Jewish people, they will say, all the books, all the Jews are liars, no one says the truth. But the German people, the Nazis, who committed this terrible thing, they say also, yes, it is true, it happened. And still, people deny it. What will happen when nobody will be here anymore? Holocaust survivor Lily Abert giving her reaction to the potential plans to build a learning centre and a memorial in the heart of Westminster. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by Melanie Gottlieb, the centre manager of the Holocaust Survivor Centre, and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. They'll be discussing the very topic you've just been hearing, commemorating the Holocaust. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to a remarkable young member of the community about raising money for his Ethiopian council. But first, Rachel Lichtenstein is possibly one of the most prolific writers our community has ever seen. Her latest work, Estuary, Out from London to the Sea, is published this month. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about Rachel's new book by speaking to her. She started by asking Rachel what inspired her to write it. Well, it was actually a book project that came By complete surprise, I'm known predominantly as a writer of London histories and particularly of Jewish histories. I moved from London back to my hometown of Lee in Essex about 10 years ago. And whilst I was here, I was invited to participate on an artist-led experiential cruise along Thames Estuary in 2011. And the idea was to take a Thames barge for five days along the historic waterway with a mixed crew of artists. Um, I was the writer. There was an archaeologist, a filmmaker and various others just to experience the river and see what was happening on that waterway at that particular time. And I kind of jumped at the chance because I grew up in Southend-on-Sea and I've always looked across at the estuary. But like many Jewish girls, I'd never been sailing or been on a boat before. So I thought this would be an interesting opportunity. It turned out to be quite a life-changing trip because during those five days, I realised that I, had, I, I kind of gained a completely different understanding of the geography of where I lived along the Essex coastline, its connectivity to London, and also a very, very deep kind of curiosity about that 
place. Up until that point, I've been writing a great deal about different streets in London and exploring them from multiple angles. And I thought of the Thames Estuary as a thoroughfare, as our kind of greatest thoroughfare, really, an entry point into London for millennia, and all the stories that could be told about that place. And I thought it would make an, an excellent subject for a book. And then during the past five years, I've now travelled up and down the river on about 25 different vessels and interviewed over 50 different people who've spent their working lives on the water. And it's been a really fascinating and very, very interesting book to research. You said that there was um, a Jewish connection. What, what sort of a Jewish connection is there? Well, it's very minimal <laughs> for my books. I mean, I, the, the, at the starting point for the book is really Tower Bridge and the Hall of London. And whilst I was sitting there on that very first night on the barge, I realised that it was somewhere near to Iron Gate Stairs, the place where my Polish Jewish grandparents were disembarked nearly a century ago after a long, harrowing journey to sea. And then their boat, which was most probably packed full of Yiddish-speaking immigrants like them, who would have been taken off the boat and put on the tenders and then taken across to the shore and out into the streets of Whitechapel in a new life. And I remember speaking to the playwright Bernard Copps, who told me that his mother had said when she saw the great arms of Tower Bridge raised, it was like a mother kind of welcoming them home. And there was one other particular kind of Jewish story or legend, myth, I suppose, that I came across whilst researching the book that was set during the time of the plague, the very, very early years of Jewish resettlement back into London. About a group of Jews were rowed out to a sandbank um, near London Bridge. And apparently the skipper, so the story goes, the skipper demanded extra money from them to take them to the other side, which they didn't have. So he left them there and they all drowned. And the surf and the wild waters that surround London Bridge today are believed to be these kind of Jewish souls in torment still kicking up. So there are these kind of legends and myths and stories and memories that have left their traces in the book and elements of the Jewish story. But also, I suppose, the predominant one is, you know, that's the very reason how I and my family ended up in Essex on that coastline is because, like many uh, Polish-Jewish migrant families who settled in the East End pre-war, um, after the war and during the war, and they moved out. And one of the places they moved out to was Southend. I mean, my grandparents lived in the East End for a long time, and they used to save up all year, you know, for a day trip to Southend to visit the pier and sit on deck chairs in the fresh air and you know they thought they were in paradise yeah have tea and so scones the idea post-war that they could move you know to some, somewhere like south end on sea beside the sea and was very attractive to them so there is that story of kind of post-war immigration jewish immigration to places like south end 
We do tend to sort of think of London in terms centred around the Thames, but when we think of it, you do tend to think of, like you said, about a century ago, it feels quite mystical. It also, you're following people's stories, aren't you, apart from just the, the river itself, what people were doing around the docks and the rivers in your book. You're following specific people. How did you decide who you wanted to focus how on? Did I, how are they did I real? Find the people? <laughs> yes, and are they real? And did, how did you how did you sort of find out about their their oh, background? Oh yes, yes, every single one. It's a it's it's a non-fiction book. The way that I always write books is I never kind of advertise or try and find people in that way. So it always starts, you know, one story leads to another. So after that initial trip on the barge I became very curious I wanted to get back out on the water again and I wanted to meet people so one of the first trips that I took was to a, a place in Essex called Morden that has the largest fleet of Thames barges still operating in the world today actually and you know they were the lorries of the day the Thames barges so that's a huge story on the estuary and um, they were the great working boats of that place and I started speaking to a skipper there that kind of led me on to other stories and then asked around a lot locally where I knew and I started speaking to cocklers and river pilots and fishermen and the wives of fishermen who you know wait on the shore and then through these people I met other extraordinary characters really extraordinary characters like Prince Michael of Sealand for example who is also a cockler from Leon's Sea, but his family have been running Sealand, which is the smallest principality in the world, based on a formal naval sea fort on the right on the outer reaches of the Thames Estuary. So the stories and the adventures I have were quite astonishing, really. You know, from kind of being winched up from the sea, from a moving boat onto somewhere like Sealand and meeting those kind of characters to spend time in, you know, the Thames Estuary's oldest tugboat or, or meeting the mudlarkers, you know, who walk along the shore picking up the fragments of history left behind by centuries and centuries of human habitation along the shoreline and what gets dropped into the water. So it's a kind of endless ongoing story that's impossible really to kind of capture in one book I mean I could have carried on writing this and well, researching it for the rest of my life to be honest it's absolutely fascinating and we will hopefully be reading how you've peeled back all the various layers and got to know the the nooks and crannies of the estuary which uh, we just tend to sort of think of as, as there because it's not as important to us for for our transport so much anymore I just wanted to ask you that the book is available now the book is being officially launched on the, on the 22nd of September and I'll be doing a number of events um, around London and in Essex, including launching book at the Est Metals History Festival, a major new festival um, taking place at Tilbury Cruise Terminal. Author Rachel Lichtenstein talking to Kate Fulton there about her newest book, Estuary, Out from London to the Sea. It's published later this month. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That all-important address is coming up, but it does mean that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And, of course, we'll try and read them out 
as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, UJIA has recently completed a programme which saw London Bar and Bat Mitzvah students meet with their Ethiopian-Israeli counterparts, helping them to raise more than £40,000 for their community back home in Haifa. The Londoners were from the Kingston and Surbiton, Kinloss, South Hampstead and St John's Wood communities. Our community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to one of the participants, Max Heller, and Melanie Kelly from UJIA. And Diana started by asking Max, why did he get involved in the first place? I was doing the Ethiopian Bar but Mitzvah the programme because I really, really wanted to sort of have a special connection, not only with a charity, but also pre-Bemitzvah, I wanted to see some background to the Jewish community in a different area to what I usually see just going to Israel. And why in particular the Ethiopian-Israeli community? The UJIA have been supporting the Ethiopian Olim for uh, about 20 years, about 10 or 11 years ago. We started to support the community through a Bar Bat Mitzvah twinning program because we felt that there was a lot of connection that could easily be made between young Israeli Ethiopians and young people in the UK to learn both about their Jewish identity through the prism of the Ethiopian immigration experience and the Ethiopian uh, Jewish experience. And this has been a very successful program that has run for, as I say, over 11 years now. And we've had over 400 children in the UK take part in the programme. This year we've had almost 100 children. And they have an educational programme to learn about what becoming Bar Bat Mitzvah means, as well as supporting their twins go through an, a similar educational programme in Kiryat Bialik, which is just outside Haifa in northern Israel, which is the community we work with. I see. Max, have you actually met your twin? Yes. Recently, we went on the trip to Israel, which I partook in, and I met my twin called Asha Achanafi. But before that, I went to clubs every month and learned about both my twin and the Ethiopian Jewish culture, which is their cultural background is different to ours. Can you explain how? They eat different food and they dress up differently and they have different festivals. Now, this all happened quite recently, I think, didn't it? The, what you call a graduation event, Melanie, is that right? Yes, we have a graduation event for all of our London clubs that took place last Sunday. 
we invited all of the children that had been involved to come together, receive their certificates for participation, to celebrate all of the amazing fundraising activities that they've undertaken in the last year, and to also collect their memory books, which they have been working on throughout the year, learning about the Ethiopian Olim, recording their impressions, and we present them with this memory book, which lasts as a lovely memento for the future years, so they can look back and remember that's what I did when I was preparing for my bar bat mitzvah. What's in your memory book, Max? Well, in my memory book, there is pictures of me and my friends doing different activities. There's some worksheets that I have done on learning about the different Ethiopian cultural backgrounds. And also, I have got recorded messages between me and my twin over the past months, which I had. Recorded? Yeah, the like... The copies of the letters that yeah. were sent between I see. them. between them. All and, the kids and have did, a... did, did, did he keep one as well? <clears throat> a memory book? Yeah, he gets a memory book, obviously, in Iveret, in Hebrew, and our kids get a memory book in the UK. Brilliant. One of the main roles that UJA provides as part of this programme is providing translation services. So Excellent. the children from the UK can write their yes. letters in English. Yes. We then translate them into Ivrit. And sometimes our colleagues in Israel also have to then translate them into Amharic, which is the language that the Ethiopians spoke in Ethiopia, and which is the language the parents speak, so that the whole family can be part of the programme. That's very interesting. I hadn't realised that that, that that was a sort of three-way translation process going on. You don't speak any Amharic, do you, Max? No, but I did try to learn using Google Translate, but that didn't work out so well. <laughs> no, that, that tends to gobble everything up, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Spit it out the other end incomprehensibly. So, Melanie, this fantastic amount of money that you've raised, £40,000, what's it going to be spent on? Absolutely. Well, it's not me that raised it. It's all the wonderful children that have been involved in the yes, programme this should year. I said that. <laughs> it's going to be spent on the programme that we run in Israel. As Max said, he attends a programme once a month for eight months. But the children in Israel are attending their programme two or three times a week. They're being provided with educational opportunities, cultural opportunities, support for their education in the Israeli school system, as well as support for their families and their parents. They get taken away on a Shabbat on together. They are taken to Jerusalem for their bar bat mitzvah uh, celebrations and that is all covered by the money that we raise plus other money that the UJA put in to supplement the, co- the cost of the programme. Right, so this is all to help them integrate into Israeli society. Exactly. The Ethiopians have come from a very, very different environment to Israel. They've come from a pre-industrialised society to the westernised society of Israel that we know. Things like electricity, running water, flushing toilets are all completely alien to them and so their integration is so much more difficult and prolonged and anything we can do for the children and their extended families is to the benefit. Things that we take for granted. Indeed. Right, now what happens now? Where are you going from here, so to speak? Well, Max has already offered to come and help us with our next UJA telethon, even though officially he's graduated from the programme now. So he's very, very keen and we're very happy to do that. 
One of the amazing things that we can do as part of the UJA's programme is we can provide ongoing support for the Ethiopian Olim in Kiryat Bialik. Originally, when this programme started, we were dealing with new Olim who were living in absorption centres. But the absorption centres closed down in 2013. And that's when we moved our project to Kiryat Bialik, which is a more settled community. So now we have a young leadership group of Ethiopian Olim in Kiryat Bialik who are graduates of the programme and will be able to follow them through to their army service, providing educational support and youth leadership training for them. And we're also in negotiations with the mayor of Kiryat Bialik, who's been exceedingly supportive of our work towards building a community centre for the Ethiopian community in the town so that they can celebrate their culture and share it with the wider community. And Max, do you think the man- all this enormous amount of money you've raised is going to go towards that community centre yes, to make it work? Yes, and I think it's a very, very good cause and I think it is going to work. Max Heller alongside UJIA's Melanie Kelly talking to community reporter Diana Toman there. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is Melanie Gottlieb, Centre Coordinator at the Holocaust Survivors Centre, and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. The subject today is based on what we heard in the news with Viv and Phil talking to Olivia Marks Waldman about earlier on, Holocaust Memorial. Proposals this week suggest that a learning centre for Holocaust education should be built within the heart of Westminster. Now, although this is still in a very infant stage, it's still remarkable to consider that one of the darkest times in our community's history should be acknowledged in such a way. The question is, how should and can the country improve on Holocaust education and remembrance? Also, as the years go on, is there a risk of it being forgotten about altogether? Melanie, let's start with you. How do you think this country fares when it comes to commemorating the Holocaust? Well, at the moment, there's just a very small monument in Hyde Park in the area called the Dell that not many people can find. This is an amazing move forward. The site that's been chosen is in Victoria Tower Gardens, which is bang next to Big Ben, the footfall along that area. They reckon will be about a million people a year. Um, They're planning to build an enormous memorial. If you're anywhere near there, the site is absolutely beautiful. And underneath, the plans at the moment, as I understand, are to have the learning centre. So it'll all be in one place. But how many people will really be, I mean, we've got to be honest about this, how many people really be interested in it? I mean, is it already being thought about the Holocaust by people, I don't mean by Jewish people, but is it thought by the general public that the Holocaust is a bit like the Inquisition? Well, many members feel so strongly, especially as now they're ageing, that their legacy should not be forgotten. And it's very hard for them to talk about their legacy. They still go out and speak to students in many more actually non-Jewish schools than Jewish schools. And the feedback that they get back and the letters are just so inspirational. 
And they understand that there may not be many years left when they can go and tell their legacy. So they're always looking forward into the future. And one of my members has just been participating in a project run by Beth Shalom in Nottingham, in which she spent a week down there answering 9,000 questions. And they're actually producing a hologram for the members. So the students will be able to ask the questions and they'll get an answer. Jeremy, what's your thought about all of this? Yes, you have to have um, remembrance in some way, shape or form, whether it's on um, Remembrance Sunday. We have a monument and it's recognised. And I think the Jewish community should have the same. And I think it's good that there are in, uh, there's this initiative. Wasn't this mooted by the previous Prime Minister? It was, but yeah, David okay, Cameron, yeah. Uh, I think it's a good thing and uh, I hope it goes ahead. It's definitely going ahead, isn't it? Mm. Yes, Wednesday of this week they have announced an international design competition. It's going to be global. I mean, it isn't just a small one person submitting a design because the idea is to have above the ground and below the ground. You're going to have teams. They're looking for six teams to give a proposal. So you're looking for an architect, a landscape designer, accessibility, technology. There's going to be at least six people in the team. They're going to put forward their proposal. And I think from that selection, they will be shown in London in January 2017. And in the summer of 2017, the winner will be announced. You know, that's that's really very reassuring, Melanie, because I, I've seen the information recently about that there's a design competition. And I kind of thought it was just open and I was thinking you're going to get kids at school designing these things. That's very reassuring because I was actually quite worried how tasteful this was going to be and whether it would just be like a kid's drawing come to life. And that, that's very reassuring to hear. I think is. if you look at the work that the company you can see online have been participating in, they do enormous, enormous projects and the companies only receive a small amount. I think it costs them much more to produce the design. Mm. I think they receive like 15000 It's called an honorarium payment. But of course, their work is then shown globally. It's sort of like a... You know, do we know uh, what size? If you, you should go and see the site. I think the site itself is huge. I think it's going to be about... You could get six, say, double-decker buses and four wow. times the height. It's right by the Thames and also next to Big Ben. You couldn't have picked a better site. The wow. fact still remains is that people will go and look at this and will they know what it means? Do you see what I'm getting at? There was actually the statue that was at Liverpool Street Station of yeah. the children yes, of yeah. the kinder transport. Yeah. And as we know, it's now been taken down and part of it is in actually in Beth Shalom in Nottingham. The problem with that, I found, was, and a lot of people commented on this, that people were just sitting on it to have their sandwiches at lunchtime and people were walking past it and not taking it in, not reading it, and really... Most people, by all accounts, didn't know what it was there for and didn't bother to find out. How is well, this going to be different? Yeah, isn't that a case of design? Well, or appropriate think, design? But I think know. design along with, you have to have something making it obvious. You know, I think it was very subtle and almost a bit too subtle. I personally don't think we should be subtle about our remembrance of the Holocaust. No, I agree I think we should, I agree. It should be out there in people's faces. This is, this is what I'm trying to get yeah. at. I mean, I think it's much more important that people should be made to go 
absolutely forced to go, as it were, to see what Auschwitz is like. Mm. I mean, mm. I've been there. I've seen it now. And it, even I, as a Jew, who, as a little boy, lived while the, this Holocaust was going on in Europe. I wasn't there. I was fortunately in Africa. But nonetheless, I was there. But nowadays, even young Jewish children don't know what exactly the Holocaust was. I'm and sorry. is it just because it's going to have this amazing memorial where this will have the effect? If you go to Auschwitz, you see what happened. Yeah, and that's what we need with this. We need something where it actually has that impact on you, not that it's just a nice monument. Well, exactly. So, I mean, what are we going to do about that then? I think the government has plans that it also will be a meeting place where you can hold commemorative services. I mean... Holocaust Memorial Day is in the government calendar, but to us in the Jewish community, Yom HaShoah is far more important. And for the last couple of years, we've been able to meet around 3,000 at the Allianz Stadium to commemorate Yom HaShoah. Whether this will be big enough to hold the same event there, but many Jewish people do go at the moment to the Dell on Yom HaShoah, the organisations and survivors. It still holds some spiritual meaning for them. From a Jewish point of view, but from a non-Jewish point of view, and this is, this is just as important that non-Jews know what happened at the Holocaust, will they feel the same way about this? Well, it is on the uh, government curriculum. Holocaust education has to be taught in schools, but of course... In many schools, you could have a teacher in art doing it or a mm. teacher in human relations or geography. It just really is the luck of the draw of the teacher that wants to make the most of the project. Is the memorial, the Holocaust memorial that's planned there, going to be just a Jewish memorial or is it going to cover all genocides? And, and how do we feel about the word Holocaust itself being used beyond the shower. There's no mention at the moment that other genocides will take part in that. Right. But I'm pretty sure it has to be. I mean, because one of the remits for the design is that the monument must show the UK's involvement in refugees and helping people. Right. So I do expect it to have some some of the other genocides in. To my members at the centre, it should only be Holocaust <laughs> and never stray from that at mm. all. Because I find it a bit odd sometimes when people talk about different Holocausts and... I, 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 I almost find that it dilutes it yes, somewhat. I, I agree with you. It's, 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 it's semantics, really. But yes, there, mm -hmm. perhaps there ought to be something for the killing fields in Cambodia and what happened in, uh, in, because, in, yeah, in, in Africa. Yeah. Perhaps there should be something. You know? Well, Holocausts mm. are still carrying on to this day and it's therefore it should be a place, oh. surely, should But it? are they or is it... Yeah, no, are, are they genocides? I, mean, I, I disagree, Clyde. I mean, what, what do you mean by is Holocaust today? Well, look what happened only a few years ago in where well, former Rwanda Yugoslavia. Or, oh, okay, yeah. So that was all right. Yeah. Uh, was, uh, what, what's, what's happening at the moment uh, with with ISIS? What it's doing to hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of people, and it's growing and growing and growing. But that, that's my point. Is I mean, I, I feel calling that a Holocaust dilutes what actually was the Holocaust. I just hope that. This memorial is something that is a very strikingly, obviously, the Holocaust from the Second World War that does clearly commemorate 
the six million Jews that lost, and that the it doesn't ten, start were, becoming a bigger thing, and everything. There were ten million people killed in the killed by Hitler sure. and his people. There were six million Jews, and there were four million other non-Jews. Yeah, people who suffered, people who were mentally ill, people who were good Christian people who hated the idea of Nazism. The Holocaust takes in much more than just the Jewish side of it. I know, six million people were killed, and it was dreadful, and it must never be forgotten. But it's, it's very this hard, This will lead though. to the whole thing being remembered. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's how do we remember it, as we started the conversation off here. How do we remember it? And you mentioned, Melanie, about Beth Shalom in Nottingham. I, I was actually there at the beginning of the week doing um, some interviews and things. And as you mentioned, the way they're commemorating it and this is a remarkable place as you know set up by mm -hmm. a christian family and it's quite stunning this place it really is and this project they've got with the 3d hologram on stage that children can ask questions to that to me that was the most mm. uplifting part of my visit there because as you said it's always going to be remembered and it's exactly those kinds of projects that I think are utterly vital. That's a good place of which to end the discussion, because unfortunately our time is up. Thank you all very much indeed. And my thanks to our guests, Melanie Gottlieb, Centre Coordinator at the Holocaust Survivors Centre, and The Voice, that's Jeremy Jacobs, of course. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. The Parsha Kitetse contains more mitzvot, more commandments, than any other in the entire Torah. And it covers a huge range. There isn't really one theme at all. Laws about marriage, laws about war, and laws about interpersonal integrity. Right at the end of the Parsha, the last two commandments seem like an odd juxtaposition and a very odd way to sign off. The last one is very well known. It's the requirement to remember and to never forget, all at the same time, the evils of Amalek. Amalek, the historic enemy of the Jewish people, attacked the Israelites as they left Egypt and surfaced at various times during the Bible story. And we're never to forget what they did, their intention, how they tried to eliminate us. Unfortunately, presaging our persecutors throughout Jewish history. But the mitzvah, the commandment before, that's also a little surprising. And it's a requirement to have honest weights and measures. And the text says you must have an honest hin, an honest afar. And these were ancient measures, some of weight, some of volume, some of liquid, and some dry measures. There's a requirement to have absolutely honest measures. So much so that the Torah forbids us to own incorrect measures, let alone use them, in case we're tempted or in case it gives us some kind of validation to measures and behaviours that are not perfectly honest. The rabbis consider the juxtaposition and recognise that sometimes our external enemies and our internal enemies are one and the same. God brought us out of Egypt to have a distinct national identity, one which, of course, the Amalekites refuted. But on the other hand, we have to have an internal identity, and that is exemplified by perfect honesty. God wants us to be a nation where integrity, 
good business practices and perfect honesty are our signature. And God wants us and brings us out of Egypt only for that purpose. So as such, the juxtaposition really makes sense. External attackers and internal attackers are doing the same thing. They refute the very reason for our existence. Honesty lies at the very heart of meaningful Jewish existence. Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Olivia Marks-Waldman, Lily Abert, Rachel Lichtenstein, Max Heller, Melanie Kelly. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Melanie Gottlieb and Jeremy Jacobs. And of course, thanks to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.